Hello and welcome to another edition of Nutshell, the program that summarizes the biz news stories of the week. Well, this has been a week when the effect of ideology was looming over South Africa's economy. Well, apart from the challenges we face tackling the legacy of corruption in the Zuma years, which has led to ESCOM, among other problems, the country has to contend with land expropriation without compensation and a national health service for South Africa, which aren't exactly policies in thrilling investors. Bloomberg has warned that President Soro Ramaphosa's independence on the left is stemming South African reforms, with the SACP and Labour Union standing in the way of the reform that the economy needs. Many questions were asked by the business community, including how on earth is South Africa going to afford a national health service? Does the government realize that the expropriation of land could open a Pandora's box of other unintended consequences? And the other lingering question was to Steinoff, when will Marcus Euster be arrested? The ANC's policy on land expropriation without compensation is reaching its final stage with an 11-member multi-party ad hoc committee in Parliament tasked to tell the National Assembly how to proceed to change the Constitution. This has prompted the Institute for Racial Relations to come up with a strategy on how it thinks the farming community could counter the risks of expropriation without compensation. There are more details on the business website, but it boils down to organize around institutions that will fight for the farming community, and they should get public opinion on their side. This does not include political parties or foreign governments. The Institute's Terence Corrigan explained to Alec Hogg why it's an issue getting people in South Africa so hot under the collar. We are opposed to the principle of expropriation without compensation. Yes, it is often phrased in an agricultural metaphysics, if you like, or um, as a land issue. But once that floodgate is opened, um, there's a sort of genie out of the bottle principle. And we do not believe that this will be confined to, um, uh, to land, to farming. We've already seen proposals for things like prescribed assets. Uh, the other day, um, there was the head of the uh, Health Professions Council saying that uh, medical aid reserve should be nationalized. The impact across the whole investment environment has already been, I think, quite deleterious. So it's a slippery slope. In other words, you start well, here look, and it's, anything it's, could it's, happen. Well, yeah, look, I mean, uh, in, intrinsically, it's a, um, uh, it's a bad idea. I hear what you say about the, about the imperative of land reform. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, just to clarify something, we are not opposed to land reform. But the World Bank released a paper some years ago which had a very, very evocative line in it, that policies designed for redistribution will benefit the poor to the extent that they do not disrupt the capacity of an economy to, to, um, to generate wealth. South Africa has, I think, already taken enormous damage from this, uh, from the mere debate. Once it enters the realms of actual seizures, I think that we can kiss any, any prospects of new dawns, or for that matter, old dawns, goodbye. Okay, so let's just go back to the basics here. How did it yes. become such an emotive issue that the ANC government and indeed a president who's very sensible in most areas mm. uh, would right. have embraced this? Well, look, I think you, uh, you sort of have to go back to um, uh, uh, probably to the 1960s to the influence that uh, uh, the sort of vulgarized um, uh, uh, socialism had on the, on, uh, on the thinking of the ANC. Uh, land itself, of course, has always been a very, very evocative issue for nationalist movements, and that's irrespective of you know, what part of the world they come from. Um, now, uh, in the 1990s, the ANC was uh, ambivalent about the idea of constitutional protection of property. Um, 
although there it wasn't it wasn't land that was the uh that was the issue it was uh things like mines it was things like what you know what they called industri- industrial monopolies banks that sort of thing which uh, i think is now sort of slipped back into the discourse as white monopoly capital um so i think that there was always a, a, a very strong ideological pull it started to come back into into vogue uh probably about uh, 10 years ago we've seen about 30 pieces of, of, of legislation, policy proposals, and whatever that sort to significantly constrain uh, property rights. Um, and I think that uh, you know because of the of the um, uh, sort of twins of, of ideology and the symbolism of land, um, that it, it, it became an issue that um, uh, that started to you know generate a certain political momentum. Uh, you know, on the um, in the Zuma camp. Uh, President Ramaphosa, I think, was uh, was then presented with us, and um, I think he essentially trimmed his sails accordingly. Mm. Um, so it's politics. And, uh, it's all about politics, well, not about economics. Um, no, I, no, I don't think there's anything to do with with, um, with economics whatsoever. In fact, uh, um, Kabisi Jonas just said the just said the other day, introducing his book, that President Ramaphosa has to decide whether he wants to unite the ANC or, or he wants to save the country. Um, I think these two things are, are, are in severe tension. I think this is a very good example of them. Okay, so let's just try and reshape this, this mm. discourse. Isn't it right. smarter to say nobody's against compensating land or giving back land to those people who were dispossessed illegally? Yes, of course. Let's, of course. But let's separate that from yeah. a, a broader uh, conversation. The problem that, that I, I think is, is happening in South Africa is because the headlines are all dominant uh, around EWC, it's become populist, it's, it's lost, it's, it seems, Terence, to have, to have lost the real focus and, and the stuff that you're trying to, um, to warn against. Yes, uh, look, I think that it's become, um, it's become a totem. It's kind of, uh, you know, like the, uh, like the idol carried at the head of the conquering army. Um, yes, uh, I'd, um, we, we, we have a vast volume of, um, of research, um, including by people who are not particularly sympathetic to the idea of property rights, uh, about what is wrong with, um, uh, with land reform in South Africa. Uh, very, very little of it actually has to do with, with, uh, with the compensation requirements. Um, you know, I, I can personally tell you stories of, um, of people who have tried to, um, donate land, you know, um, uh, farmers who are, who are exiting the industry and have no one to, to pass it on to. Um, land, uh, certainly in an agrarian sense, is not a um, is 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 not is not the key thing for um, uh, for uh, for, uh, for successful agrarian reform. You need skills, you need capital, you need a, a sort of functioning state, you need agricultural extension service. None of which we have, and none of which will be um, will be uh, uh, provided by this. Yet um, in uh, March last year, you had President Ramaphosa saying that, uh, uh, you know, we're coming for the land, and when we take it, we'll take it without compensation. A month earlier, he was saying that this was going to turn South Africa into a, into a garden of Eden. His theology is actually actually wrong there. Um, but you know, it's it's as I say, it's become a um, it's become a totem. The problem is that the, the problem is a political totem has very real economic costs. Um, there has been a fall off in agricultural investment, and I can tell you we have, we speak to a lot of business people, both local and domestic, who have nothing to do with agriculture, who say that until this is off the table, they're not, they're not sinking their money. Also under the spotlight was the National Health Insurance Bill, which promises universal health care to every South African. For anybody that has lived overseas, a National Health Service could be a wonderful thing. 
But even for larger, rich democracies, funding a free health service is extremely difficult. In the case of the United Kingdom, often touted as the best in the world, the life of doctors is difficult with ridiculously long hours, so much so that many leave the profession. Well, if you haven't read Adam Kay's book, This Is Going to Hurt, please do, because apart from the fact that it's very funny, it gives you an idea of how tough doctors find it in the NHS. Financial planner Dawn Riddler told Jackie Cameron what impact it's likely to have on South Africans with medical aid. The biggest difference, of course, is going to be that um, at the moment we have complete choice of um, medical professional, um, whether it's a GP, dentist, doctor, specialist, whatever else it is. Um, The bill's proposal is that you will not be able to get any medical care that you paid for, basically, which you will be paying for probably through some form of tax um, without going through a government clinic first. Um, and they will decide how you will be treated, if and what specialists you need to see, if and what medication you need to take, etc. That is going to be the the first and the major impact on on us individuals that are currently on medical aid. So basically the government will decide whether you need more health care or who you will be seeing, or, or will there be some sort of element of choice like there is now? No, there'll be no choice. Not, not according to the, you know, what we've read so far. Now, uh, bear in mind that you know the this NHS NHI bill that they put out is very thin on the detail, and it's even thinner on how they're going to fund it, which is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, you know, if a director walked into a shareholders meeting with as little information as um, you know, this uh, this minister has he would have been fired on the spot. But you know, that's the way government runs, I suppose. So, and, and uh, I believe that the estimate is that it will cost at least two hundred and fifty billion rand just to get things started up by twenty twenty. So that means a lot of taxpayers' money. Are our taxes going to go up, or how are they going to fund this? Well, you know, they've been pretty wishy-washy about how they, they're going to fund it, um, you know, which is, which is half the problem. Obviously, the tax, medical tax credit, medical aid tax credit that you get at the moment, which has been slowly reducing over the years, um, is only worth $20 billion. Uh, So they've got a $230 billion more that they, they've got to find. And this, this is an additional $250 billion over and above the $233 billion they're already spending, right? Yes. which makes it an almost you know, $500 billion, half a trillion rand little exercise, double the size of ESCOM. Wow. And tell me, will we still have private medical cover? What, what, what's going to happen with that? Will we still have to pay for our, our health care? Um, what they said is that medical aids will only be allowed to, in inverted commas, top up what isn't covered by um, by the government. But if you have a look at the list of things that um, they say that they're going to cover, cardiology, dermatology, neurology, oncology, psychiatry, obstetrics, gynecology, pediatrics, orthopedics and surgery, including organ transplants, it doesn't leave much room for, for top up. So does this mean that uh, a lot of people must be very worried now about how are they going to cover the private health care in a country where the state has clearly not 
delivered on all fronts in terms of uh, education and uh, security and so on. So, so what so what do we do? Very few of us are going to be able to afford to spend, say, six thousand rand a month on on medical aid and another six thousand rand a month being taken off our off our um, income to to pay for the NHI hmm. of our economy at the moment. Okay, now say the worst happens. You've got some important tips here to share so that people can mitigate uh, the effects. And you said you have to take action in advance of the proposed changes. Um, and you mentioned, for example, good dread disease cover. You think that is still worth uh, spending money on? There's very little downside. I've been, you know, um, suggesting this to my clients uh, long before NHI became a, a, a real threat like it has recently. You know, some really good dread disease cover um, costs in excess, for example, some of the cancers and that, in excess of a million rand to be treated properly. You know, some of the, you know, um, skin cancers and this kind of thing. Once they get into your into your bloodstream, if you if you want a good chance of success, they cost a million rand. Now the medical aids already are not paying for that that full amount. Um, and so if you want to have that kind of of lump sum to pay to basically save your life, um, you're going to have you know have to take out drug disease cover. But there's no point in taking out which is life cover. And it's going to depend on what your health is at the, and your ages at this point in time. Um, and it's not, it's not cheap. And it's not cheap for a very good reason, is that one in four people already um, are on chronic medication that are, in, um, are on medical aid. Uh, there's a, you know, and every year that goes past, you've got a greater chance of actually getting a, a drug disease. Not all uh, insurance providers are equal, and uh, some maybe uh, look like they will cover you for dread disease cover, but you know, once you get into the fine print, uh, very little is covered. How do you actually go about choosing the right dread disease cover? Is there a lot of choice on offer? There, there's a massive amount of choice, which is the biggest problem. And I think part of the, the problem is that um, not all the brokers out there are exposed to all the different benefits. If you have a tight broker, they only know what they provide um, and, and have no comparisons. The only reason that I actually know a little bit more about this is because um, I've been on the you know, Financial Planning Institute Risk Committee and, and you know, this was part of my mandate to look at this. But um, there are some good ones and there are some that are absolutely dreadful. And without stepping on toes, steer well clear of anything that comes out of a call centre. The NHI bill has had a detrimental effect on publicly listed private medical companies with the shares of Discovery, which is the largest open medical aid scheme in the country, diving on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Other shares that were negatively affected were Discam, Aspen Pharmacare, Nedcare and Mediclinic, which all traded weaker after the release of the bull. Financial analyst David Shapiro investigated if there was more behind the fall in Discovery's share price. Whenever I see unusual price movements, I like to know why the share price is falling, particularly in Discovery's case where the share price had gone down recently from about 140 all the way to, at that stage, 105, 106. We know that national health uh, could affect them, but that's far away and uh, 250 billion rands worth of spending before that uh, really takes off. So it appeared to me that there was more 
to the story. Um, I investigated and found out that a, an analyst at Macquarie, whom we know, uh, Larissa van Dierwinter, had done a report on the insurance sector in which she valued, and this is why there was a bit of backtracking on my place, she on my part, sorry, she valued uh, certain of their life business or she valued their life businesses on, let's call it, a 12-year horizon, which was in line with some other insurances versus a more aggressive valuation that Discovery used. And she said on the basis that she valued the companies, it would leave a kind of hole. When I say a hole, it would could leave their reserves underfunded by that 15 billion. So hence the, you know, hence the story. I, d- I don't know whether it really had an effect on the market, but I think it's a worry that, uh, that analysts, you know, in this kind of market are taking different views to, uh, to discovery. So that's where it came from. Uh, the sad thing is that I'm looking at discovery today. They've fallen below a hundred. Wow. And yeah. Yeah, you know, Alec, my, my concern is I'm, I'm trying to find out why, why our market is actually under such huge pressure. There's a much bigger sell-off taking place here, which I find particularly disturbing. You know, it's, uh, it's, 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 we've come under severe pressure and it could be a, a, a massive emerging market sell-off. It might even be local institutions deciding to cash in and and rather go in for ca- you know when I say cash in in a literal sense just take some money off the table leave it in cash earn seven eight percent and wait and see what happens but we've seen you know shares like Sassel down at two hundred and eighty Aspen has been absolutely devastated they're down around under seventy rand so a lot of value has been destroyed on SA Inc and uh, it's concerning. You know, from our point of view, it's concerning because we don't know where this is going to end, nor do I know who's behind uh, the sell-off. In June, Discovery's share price was 150 rand, and you say yeah. now it's below 100 rand today. Below 100, yeah. Is that so, not by by taking the rational approach and uh, and and a more reflective view, an excellent buying opportunity? That, that's what I'm trying to find out. <laughs> you, you know, you, that's exactly what I'm trying to find out. And that's why I like to get to the source of the weakness to understand why this is, you know, why this is taking place. And that's why you start to dig. Maybe the analyst has got her, got her reasons and, uh, you know, well, we've had enough analysts in the past who've actually waved flags, haven't they? Tongart, Steinhoff, and they go on. That's right. Don't you remember Basson in the old days, Dion? Remember, uh, he was a superb bank Brilliant. analyst or insurance analyst. Mm. So, you know, he picked up certain issues and uh, was criticized. But I can't say the same. You know, insurance, valuing insurance companies is such a, such a difficult uh, part of the business, you know, because you need to understand how those businesses operate. And Discovery has got some very smart people, you know, that, that I can't challenge. But um, my my only challenge and my position is based on why the share price has fallen this far, you know. And I, I'm I'm digging for answers. And if if they can satisfy us, if management uh, at the time of the results come through can satisfy us, then then it is going to be an excellent buying opportunity. I think they've got a lot on their plates as well. Adam. Mm. We still haven't heard about the bank. You know, they're doing all these overseas expansions, and, and I think. A lot of those expansions are funded from money that they uh, generate here, and you've got a rand at fifteen twenty-two, so that becomes a lot more expensive than it uh, than it was or should be.
But they're generating, so they're generating positive cash flow in the UK now, so that should be positive. Yes, yes, that's Although, a good, mm. that, yeah, that's anyway. a good one, and, and we'll see. Well, you, know, you know what I mean? I'm, I've got a daughter that works there, so I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, I, I have an interest there. I have an economic interest in that a lot of our clients own this year. So there's no, there's, you know, for me, uh, the last thing I want to do is to see permanent weakness in the share price. The story that caught our eye was Steinoff that has finally given the world a bit of what was going on in the company since its spectacular fall from grace. Steinoff CEO Louis Dupree explained that he is often asked only two questions. Where is the PwC forensic report? And when is former CEO Marcus Joester going to be arrested? The board engaged PwC via worksman's attorneys to conduct an independent investigation. Now, the investigation was, that we soon realized, had to have credibility, had to be overseen by independent new board members. So that was a willful decision that was taken by the board, and that committee, when put in place, was comprised of supervisory board members and myself, who were not board members of the group as of December 2017. It was, as part of my bowl of spaghetti analogy, took some time to to finalize, and the overview of that report was published, as you all know, on the 15th of March. We believe, and upon the advice that we've taken, that it is important to protect the privilege in that report for two reasons. The one is, as you know, and we'll deal with it on the next slide, the group faces significant litigation. But that report is just as important for outbound litigation, and the privilege in that report has to be protected to ensure that the group can use the findings in that in outbound litigation. But ultimately, the primary purpose of that report was to enable Philip, Alex, and the team to be in a position to finalize the restate to 2017 and prepare the 2018 financial statements. We have realized, after we've received that report and studied the findings, that further work needs to be done. We refer to it internally as, as a phase two, but it's probably more aptly described as further ongoing investigations. That work is ongoing. And its primary claim is to investigate possible claims against third parties and entities. And the same independent committee is overseeing the the commissioning and the finalization of that report and the investigations. We do not anticipate any further impact on the financial statements as a result of this next phase of the investigation. We need to find and we are exploring strategic solutions for the litigation. We'll deal with it later, but it's crucial that we as a group find solutions for the litigation that we currently face. We are, on top of that, not just the inbound litigation, but as I referred to, also dealing with outbound litigation, because as Heather's as on behalf of the company has often stated publicly before as part of our governance, I want to state it emphatically that we as a group are cooperating 
with authorities within South Africa. Ultimately, please appreciate, though, that it is not for the company to institute criminal proceedings against individuals. We will do our utmost to assist. We tender publicly, and we'll do so again this morning, our cooperational help as best as we can. But ultimately, it's not, it's not for us to institute those proceedings. So is it now clear on what was going to happen at Steinhoff and what will be left for share and bondholders once the litigation process is done? Wilhelm Herzog from Rosendahl spoke to Alec Hogg. A very succinct summary of events over the past, uh, call it 18 months, almost stretching to two years now, and was very helpful in terms of getting an overview of where the company is. And there were also some interesting comments made about the future direction the group will be taking under the current management team and board. But there was very little, call it value-relevant information that was disclosed. I mean, the, the trading performance of the underlying companies, which is really what one looks to in the end to assess whether there is value in sign-off and in the various instruments in the capital structure. There was no real new news on that. Um, so it was a nice overview, but really little new value-relevant information that was disclosed, to be honest. Although there was a question about when is Marcus Joester going to jail, <laughs> which I think many people <laughs> were interested in. Yeah. No, there's a great deal of public interest in, in that affair, but I mean that's really a very little relevance from an investor's point of view in sign of uh, capital structure instrument. Hmm. So, what's the next uh, the next time you're going to hear from these guys? Presumably at the annual general meeting, and and, and what would you expect them to tell you then? Correct. Uh, at the annual general meeting will be the next time there's a public uh, call it interaction from the company side with with investors and shareholders. I would expect far more aggressive questions being put to management at the AGM because typically the AGM is the forum where disgruntled shareholders arrive and air their grievances and, and, and sort of put management uh, under four eyes. That was certainly the experience in the 2017 AG, or sorry, the 2018 AGM last year. It was a far more aggressive and uh, almost antagonistic forum than what one experienced at yesterday's investor presentation. So I expect it to be, uh, I expect management to be under more pressure at the AGM than they were at yesterday's investor presentation. Uh, but I mean, I, again, I, I think I don't think there's likely to be much new value-relevant information that will be disclosed to the extent that the litigation and the ongoing litigation will be asked about. I mean, the company really can't say much at this stage. So it is a top priority for them, and that that is that will probably be top of mind at the AGM as well. But they can't really say much at this stage. There's still a great deal of uncertainty as to how that plays out, and and they can't really disclose much given the confidential nature of such proceedings. Wilhelm, having a look at the people they've brought onto the board and even the chief executive himself, it looks like it's lawyers running the place now. No, absolutely. But that is that is very much uh, what is required at this stage, I would say. Well, I mean, there's a big uncertainty hanging over the whole group is the quantum of any damages that will be uh, that will be awarded by a court in these various court actions that are ongoing. So priority number one for for the shareholders and bondholders is to ensure that all value in the group does not go to claimants in this litigation, that there's value left on the table for bondholders firstly, but then also for ordinary shareholders potentially. So it's very much the 
top of mind and 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 they need to throw all resources at ensuring that the best possible outcome uh, is negotiated in these litigation cases. So in essence, what you've got here is a is a bunch of assets, some of them very valuable, which have been acquired through um, funding that was raised be, not on, uh, on on accurate financial information, and now those who provided the funding are starting to uh, fight and saying, well, we want that money back, and depending on how much money they settle for, there might be money left in the pot for people who own Steinhoff, uh, and, or there might not be. Correct, yes. It, it, it is. One, one has to take a view on the outcome of this litigation if you want to take a view on the value of Steinhoff bonds or shares. Um, so we've done our own research and liaised with various legal experts on the matter, and there is some legal precedent in Europe as to the quantum of damages awarded in such claims. So based on that, what we, we have taken a view, but it, there is a great deal of uncertainty attached to what the eventual quantum will be. Also, over what time period Steinhoff will have to settle these claims, because there's a big difference between having to settle hundreds of millions of euros on uh, on a specific day or whether you're given sort of a number of years of which to settle these claims. So all those kinds of things can be can, can move the dial meaningfully either way in terms of how much value accrues to existing Steinhoff bondholders and shareholders. But I, I guess the good news is that you've got two guys who were and are intimately involved with the litigation against Lehman Brothers, so they certainly have been playing in the Premier League. No, correct. Look, if one looks at the legal advisors that were pulled in to advise creditors in this whole company voluntary um, uh, agreement, the CVA, they are the Premier League of global, call it restructuring law firms, and uh, hence the massive legal fees one sees flowing through Steinhoff's accounts for the past 18 months, but they certainly have pulled in the top names in the world. And that was the week on Biz News in a nutshell. Speak to you again next week.